Welcome back to season two of Serious Epidemiology. Haley, it's been a long time. It's great to be back. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. I'm super excited for this season, and I'm excited to be back here with you. Why don't you tell our listeners what you're so excited about? So, as most of our listeners know, I am a pure methods geek. I love epi methods, and for this season, I'm very excited to say that we are going to be going through the new edition, the fourth edition of Modern Epidemiology. We're going to be talking about the chapters in the book, talking about things that we found confusing, things that we found particularly interesting, and so I'm really excited to be chatting with you about it. Yeah, we're super excited to do this. Modern Epidemiology, the textbook, has played, I think, an important role in, certainly in my development as an epidemiologist, and I I have fond memories thinking back to my doctoral days of reading it for the first time and now I use it as a textbook in courses that I teach so our intention is not to go through the chapter point by point our point is to go through and and pick out some of the things that we thought were really interesting and worthy of discussion that we could hopefully provide a little more insight to or at least our reactions to and maybe some historical context so we're going to talk to various guests for the different episodes to talk to their experiences well I think our plan is to do those guest episodes as like in every other episode so we'll pick a chapter or two that we're focused on between the two of us and then we'll talk about it and then we'll bring on guests to to kind of get their feedback and see how it plays out in their work. Yeah and I think the idea is that we are here reading this as if we're at a journal club you and I a two-person journal club and hopefully our listeners will enjoy uh, listening and, and it'll help them get some thoughts or insights into the chapter that they wouldn't have had if they were just sitting reading on their own. This text textbook is so important to I think all epidemiologists as a resource and so whether you are a student going through your coursework series right now or you're an epidemiologist who's out in the field doing work I think there's something that everyone can learn from listening or reading the the chapters again. It's also a very heavy book I just want to point that out it's been a long time since I had to carry all my books around in my backpack going from class to class but if modern epidemiology were one of the textbooks that I had to carry around in my backpack I think I would have serious back trouble. Yes, I did have that thought. So this new edition, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, is soft cover. And I did think a little bit about, is that was that a decision to try to make it lighter? Because the book looks longer. I had some some deep thoughts about, about the length of the textbook and the weight of it as well. It's, it's an important thing for us to focus on, I think, here in this first episode. So Haley, before we start to talk about the textbook in general, what are your memories associated with this textbook? What was your experience with it? Which edition? was the first one that you came into contact with? So my first contact was with the third edition. It was in my advanced epi methods course at McGill taught by Jay Kaufman. And I have two main recollections. Firstly, I would think, okay, I have 15 pages to read tonight. And then four hours later, be thinking, how could I possibly still be reading the same 15 pages? It's so dense. All of the pages contain so much information that it takes forever to get through. So that's my first recollection. My second recollection is, why are the pages so thin? Yeah. It reminds me, honestly, I hope this is not blasphemous, but of reading the Bible. You know, these really thin little delicate pages. And am I even allowed? 
allowed to be highlighting this right now because as you know both of us have discussed we are kind of over highlighters so every page looks like it's a full block of highlight on this thin little page and I worry about the ink going over to the next page so those are my two general recollections about about the book how about you what was your first contact yes obviously so we are we're talking about the textbook modern epidemiology which has gone through a number of different editions so we're on the fourth edition now the original version was written by Ken Rothman by himself that was edition one edition two was Ken Rothman and Sander Greenland and that was the edition that I first came across used it I guess it would have been assigned in my epi methods course at the time was titled modern epidemiology so it was meant to follow the textbook and that was taught by Tim Lash who then became an author on the third edition and now we're on the fourth edition which it's Tim Lash Tyler Vanderweel Sebastian Hinus and Ken Rothman Xander was not an author on the fourth edition although certainly his imprint on the book is still there and so it was that course that modern epidemiology course which you know I then inherited from Tim the name is now changed to advanced epidemiology instead of modern epidemiology but it was during my doctoral student days that I first came across it and like you I had very similar experience well at first I was I was totally intimidated yeah I read it and thought gee you know maybe I'm not cut out for this because this is really really complicated and I'm not getting it all on the the first read and I bet everybody else is reading it and they get it the first time through and it's and it's only later that you realize no everybody has to really struggle to get through it in addition to which having Tim as an instructor who was using the textbook as the background material for the course where he was going through it made it all much clearer so it was a great book to be going through and then of course then you go back to it when you're preparing for your qualifying exams and then you have so much more experience than you did the first time through and a lot of things make more sense and therefore you're able to get some of the nuances that you didn't get the first time through so this is one of those books that even the same edition I think you can read a number of times and get more and more out of each time you read it yeah I totally felt that this time when we were preparing for this episode I I read the two chapters we're going to be talking about chapters two and three talking about causal inference and again I remember reading them the first time through and not really understanding most of what was being talked about and now here I am however many years later you read through it and you pick up new things which is really cool out of the same text or mostly the same text and things that just made no sense last time are really understandable so if you don't get it on your first try that's okay and totally normal I think most of us had that experience if I had the time and energy, which I have neither of, what I would love to do is read the fourth edition and the third edition one chapter simultaneously, like to see how much has changed, both in terms of just how they've written it, but so in terms of how the field has grown in terms of our understanding. I do not have the time for that, but if anybody does have the time to do that and wants to create their own podcast, I will I will be an avid listener. I love how you always have these ideas for other people to host podcasts. I am really good at coming up with things for other people to do that I would like done, but I don't have the time and energy to do. Wait, I think that's that's a skill that's called delegating, right? I think that's what yeah. we're supposed to be working towards. I'm amazing at delegating. I'm not so good at leadership, but delegating? Absolutely. That's not true. 
All right, so our plan for today is to talk about chapters two and three. Not because chapter two and three are really short chapters or, you know, there's not a lot in there, so much as they're both dealing with causal inference and, and scientific reasoning and then formal causal models. We'll skip over chapter one, which is the scope of epidemiology, because I think that's really an intro piece. Although I read it, you can't like jump in the middle of the plot. So I had to read chapter one to prepare for chapters two and three and figure out, you know, who the protagonists are and who the antagonists are and what the major motifs would be that would come back throughout the novel. And there some great insights sort of in the way that they frame chapter one too but we don't have time for that so we'll start off with you know sort of chapters two and three together and i'll let you start Haley. what stood out to you in chapters two or three that you thought were particularly interesting or in insightful or that baffled you and challenged the way you think about things there is a lot of content in these chapters and so i had many thoughts while reading through them so chapter two is broad level qualitative overview of the useful concepts or methods for causal inference so they go through these different frameworks that many of us are familiar with. One of them is the Bradford Hill. I call them usually criteria, but they are very clear in the chapter that they're considerations and they emphasize this over and over again. So I think my first thought about chapter two is that Bradford Hill has gotten a bad rap. Mm -hmm. I feel that certainly in the way I've talked about it and taught it in the past is this checklist, these criteria that you should be considering when you are considering causal inference. And that's not true. And I, you know, this is a mea culpa for me because I clearly had the wrong interpretation and I appreciated that the chapter clarified that for me. And just to set the stage here, those criteria which were laid out by Hill in the Port on Smoking and Lung Cancer. Yeah, Surgeon General, yeah criteria for thinking about when do we decide that a relationship that we're observing is indeed a causal relationship, particularly in relationship to observational epidemiology where we can't always do experiment, although it's not designed specifically for observational epidemiology because one of the criteria is experiments. But those criteria being strength, consistency, specificity, temporality, gradient, plausibility, coherence, experiment, and analogy. And you know we don't need to spend our time going through those, but so say a bit more about what you're thinking about. Those. So typically when I have thought about them, I've thought about them as this, as I said, checklist. So if you're evaluating a relationship between your exposure and your outcome, does it satisfy these specific criteria? So is there biologic plausibility for the relationship you're, you're talking about? If it's completely nonsensical, you would say, okay, it doesn't satisfy that criteria. But in fact, it's not intended to be used that way. They call it a quote, points to consider when you are evaluating the relationship. So it's not a checklist that you need to satisfy, but rather when you are looking at these relationships, have you thought about whether this is plausible? And I, I think that's a nuance, but I think it's important to understand the distinction between those two concepts. If you are evaluating something and it does not satisfy or meet one of these criteria, in no way does that mean that your relationship can't be causal. It could still easily be causal, even though it doesn't, quote, meet one of those criteria. And the opposite, of course, is true. Just because you meet the criteria doesn't make it causal. Of course, yeah. So I think that it's important for people to recognize that these are ideas you should be thinking about 
when you're evaluating causality, but not the be all and end all. It's not a checklist. And I think that that's important takeaway message from this second chapter. Yes, my experience with modern epidemiology take on the Hill considerations are that I have this very clear memory of being in that modern epidemiology course, both reading this and hearing it talked about and feeling like, okay, basically what this says is Hill's criteria are kind of foolish. You could poke holes in every single one of them, except really for temporality. Right. Which even then you can sort of poke holes in the, in the sense that there's no question that A has to come before B in order for A to cause B. But when it actually comes to data, we can be very easily confused about the temporality. So we can be convinced that A comes before B. In fact, it doesn't. And then, of course, you also have the issue of feedback loops that we now talk a lot about in epidemiology, sort of the time-dependent exposures and time-dependent confounding effects. So it gets really complicated. But essentially, my take-home was you could basically throw these considerations out because you can show account example where every single one of these criteria bar one fail and that is i think that is a new epidemiologist's view on things and by the way it doesn't say that in the chapter right. it doesn't say this is meant to show you why hill's considerations are useless it's simply meant to show you the problems with using them as a checklist because you can demonstrate that things like so say strength Certainly, you know, the bigger the effect size, the harder it is to explain a way through confounding. But yet we have some very famous examples of cases where large effects are in fact explained away by confounding. But that doesn't mean on average, you still wouldn't be more likely to think of something as causal if the effect size was larger. It's just saying basically don't fool yourself into thinking that just because the effect size is larger means it's causal. And I think that's one of those things where a little bit of, of knowledge can sometimes be a, a, a dangerous thing in that, you know, I felt sort of empowered to basically say, well, I can just, you know, dismiss these things. And anybody who uses Hill's considerations, I can be dismissive of them. When, of course, you, you can't. A lot of them are quite reasonable in terms of just starting to go through the process of considering whether or not there may be a causal relationship. Yeah, and, and so that's where I, I think they do have actually a tremendous value is that they help you think through some concepts that you might otherwise not think through. And I was surprised in the chapter how it says that Hill's considerations have sometimes been criticized for incompleteness. And I wondered when you hear that sentence, do you think they're referring to incompleteness as you mentioned, like you can poke holes in basically any of the criteria? Or do you think incompleteness in the sense that there's other considerations that we should be considering for causality? What do you what's your take on that concept of incompleteness? Yeah, I don't know, because I haven't seen a lot of other proposals for things that we might consider. Now, it's worth separating out that there's a difference here between these considerations and the causal modeling approach that, you know, has become pretty common. Like, those, these are two separate things, right? We would go through the causal modeling approach, and we'd want to be able to meet the assumption for being able to go from an association to causation. But there are these also these other considerations that we'd want to take into, into account when we think about whether or not we're willing to make that judgment. So you know, sort of could be going towards some of those things. I mean, it doesn't, there's nothing in here that talks about consistency in the causal inference sense. There's consistency in the, does the evidence all point in the same direction? There's no talk about positivity and there's no talk about exchangeability type criteria. But I, I think to an extent they are in here a little bit. So I don't know exactly what that was getting at, but it seems to me it could refer to either. That's fair. And yeah, I appreciate that perspective that those specific quote causal inference assumptions 
as they are so listed, are not explicitly discussed in the the considerations from Hill. So what about you? What was your overall interest takeaway from chapter two? So I have to admit, personally, this is no fault of the book. It's, It's more the fault of me having gone through the book a number of times. I'm kind of tired of the Hill conversation and critique, not because it's not valid. It's completely valid. It's because I feel like I've gotten past that and I'm not finding a lot of new insight personally in it. But what I really did like is after they talk about the Hill considerations, they then get into the issues of replicability, reproducibility, selective reporting, and things like that, which I think are not things, and maybe this is what they were getting at when they talked about other considerations, but they're sort of not exactly what come into the the Hill criteria. They sort of do. I mean, replicability in some sense comes in with the idea of consistency, maybe. I don't really know. I should say, when it comes to Hill criteria, there's some of them that I just don't get. Like specificity is one that's always seemed weird to me. A single exposure should have a single outcome. It's particularly weird to me since these were developed in relation to smoking and lung cancer. And smoking, we know, causes all kinds of things. But, of course, they didn't at the time, so fair enough. But, you know, that seems to me it comes much more out of the infectious disease world. And then there's plausibility and analogy and coherence. Those all feel similar to me, but anyway. Yeah, they kind of seem like the same thing. It's really hard to parse apart. It's it, They use very specific wording when they're describing each of those three concepts, I think, to make them seem more different or to back up the fact that they are different considerations when really they're kind of referring to much the same concept. Yeah, analogy is another one that always baffled me. I mean, I can come up with a crazy analogy about just about anything. Does that in any way make it useful? or helpful to people in terms of judging causation. There are probably some really good examples of cases where it does, but you know that one's always baffled me a little bit. But, you know, so as I said, what's really interesting to me, it was the, the stuff around replicability. And it's particularly interesting to me, given all that's gone on around the replicability crisis in psychology. And we had a, a speaker at last year's SER, a keynote speaker on replicability, Brian Nosek, who's done a lot of work around this. And I don't know your take, but my take was that the authors see replicability as a little bit overemphasized, maybe. I mean, I think we would all like to see cases where particular findings replicate across time. Replicability does feel to me a little bit like consistency as Hill talks about it, but I suppose it's not exactly the same thing. But, you know, we'd all like to see that replication going on, but replication is hard to do in in epidemiology, not in the sense that we don't rely on a single study to draw inferences, but it's very hard to replicate the exact same study in the exact same way in the exact same population. So it's, it's already a bit of a challenge, I think, to exactly reproduce work, but I don't think that in and of itself is a problem. But... I do get the sense that the authors feel like maybe we have been putting too much of an emphasis on reproducibility, or I should say replicability, and replicability and reproducibility are not really the same thing. Right. Okay, so as a starting point, let's just talk through what the authors define as the difference. So replicability is where one attempts to repeat a study by applying the same design to the same type of subjects, but conducted by a different set of investigators. So that's what they say is replicability. Whereas reproducibility is the extent to which other investigators can obtain the same results using the data and analysis methods or software used in the original study. So that's reproducibility. So they're very clear on defining those two concepts. It's funny to me, reproducibility rather than replicability feels to me a lot more like what I hear people talking about when they actually talk about replicability. So I wonder if these definitions are universal or if they are seen by those in the psychological sciences as being either the same thing or 
part and parcel of the same thing or if they use different definitions here. Yeah, I mean, it's clear from the way they're described in the textbook, they're describing two different concepts. Yeah. In my opinion, when I read this, I personally think replicability is potentially the more important aspect of it, right? Because reproducibility to me is looking in part for data coding errors or analyst mistakes or, you know, fishing around and, and those kinds of things that we're trying to avoid. But the broader concept of replicability, if I'm studying this exposure outcome relationship in a similar group of people, am I going to get a similar type of result? I'm not talking about the same point estimate. I'm not necessarily talking about a confidence interval that's the exact same, but is the effect in the same kind of direction, same kind of magnitude that the other authors get. I think that that is a valuable thing to understand, potentially more valuable than is somebody combing through this code, running it on their machine and getting the same answer. Am I off base? No, I don't think you are. And, and hearing you actually talk about it, I, I actually do think I stand by my original statement that I think when people talk about reproducibility in other fields, they are lumping together both of these topics. But actually, I can kind of see now actually that what they are more focused on is probably the same as it's defined here, which is the replicability part. Can you take the concept that somebody else has studied and do your own version of it and get a broadly similar result? Now, one thing, though, that I think is really important here is lack of replicability doesn't necessarily mean either study is wrong. And I, th I think that gets lost, right? So if you were to do the exact same study in the exact same population at the exact same time, and you got totally different results, that would be a little weird. And you'd want to explain that. But the truth is we don't do them in the exact same way at the exact same time in the exact same population. And so based on what we know about multifactorial causation, effect modification is, is pretty common. And so the idea that if we saw different effects in different populations at slightly different times could be explained by other factors and not necessarily that either one of them is wrong. Or it could be you do the study of the, the example I always fall back on, you do the study of the effect of hormonal contraception for the prevention of pregnancy in women and you get one answer and you do it in men and you get a, another answer and they can both be right. Now, you know, you could argue that's not really replicability because you changed the population, but I think we often don't know exactly how our populations differ. Yeah, and I, I think to add to that point, the reverse is also true. And I think that's not often discussed, which is that if you get the same answer, even in two or three or four instances, it doesn't necessarily mean that that was done correctly. This is something I've, I've talked about in the context of this obesity paradox, which I, I do a lot of work on. And so this is a finding that in certain populations, um, mostly among individuals with chronic disease, we find that obesity is protective for all-cause mortality. And this is, you know, we'll talk about this hopefully later in the season, but this is an issue related to collider stratification bias. But because the bias is structural, there are many, many, many studies that have this finding of a so-called protective effect of obesity, so much so that there are now meta-analyses claiming to prove that the obesity paradox is real, when in fact, the bias is found in each of the individual studies. And so when you do a meta-analysis of all these bias studies, you know, you might see all the point estimates are in the same direction, they have a similar confidence interval, etc. But each of them is still biased. And so I think the fact that you see something over and over again, it is replicable, but again, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not biased. 
And this is why you go back to the the critique of consistency in, in the Hill considerations is we can repeat the same mistake over and over. And there are lots of famous examples in addition to the one that you just gave us of cases where the observational data all pointed in the same direction only to have the trials either in some cases demonstrate that the observational studies were wrong or in the case of the hormonal contraception one that we weren't truly replicating the observational studies with the trials. And that's sort of what I'm, I, I'm trying to, to get at here with the idea that you can get different findings and, and have both be right. I mean, the issue with the hormonal contraception, sorry, horm- I, I keep saying hormonal contraception because that was the example I gave before, the hormone replacement therapy example, where the observational data, I believe it was cardiovascular outcomes, mm-hmm. yep. and the trial data showed harmful effects, whereas the observational data showed protective effects. Yeah. And Hernan's analysis later on seems to reconcile that actually the timing of hormone replacement therapy matters. And so you can get a harmful effect and a protective effect depending on when you are using the hormone replacement therapy you know gets at this idea to me of the idea that you can think you are perfectly replicating a study and you you aren't and effects can change over time and therefore seeing one thing in one study and another thing in another study doesn't mean you didn't necessarily replicate it it could be that there's just something more complicated going on you know, a lot of this stuff is not stuff that I paid too much attention to until I started learning more about the replicability crisis. But they talk about a lot of the issues around selective reporting, which I don't know how I missed that the first time through my epi training. But, you know, this idea of p-hacking, the idea that you could do a ton of different analyses, just find the one that gives you a significant result and then publish that one, ignore all the other ones and just end up with a significant result because you you hacked your way to glory, as people say. That was something that I think was probably not emphasized as much in my training. And I wish it had because I think this is something that I struggled with doing incorrectly for a significant period of time using significance in quote there. Yeah, I mean, I think that in part, the reason why it may not be emphasized in training programs is that usually we train people, students, trainees on how to do things properly, right? And so that would not include a lecture on p-hacking. Though potentially, you know, there's value in explaining to students, you know, this is a thing that people do and you should not be doing it. And so it's it kind of reminds me earlier on in the episode, you said something about as a student, you kind of dismiss the Hill considerations because pff, they're bad. And again, you know, that this reminds me of the importance of teaching these things to trainees with a, a very particular mindset that you need to understand why p-hacking is such a problem. And you need to understand that this is pervasive and many, many, many people do it, etc. So to understand that they should not, nobody should be doing this. Yeah, I don't know, though, that I agree that that is the reason why it wasn't talked about because I grew up quote unquote as we say in a culture where you looked at the data you analyzed the data and it didn't quite fit what you were expecting and someone then says well did you adjust for this particular variable okay no no okay that doesn't explain it all right well what about this and and you you know just keep trying different things until it the data is fit with your preconceived notions and no one ever seemed to think there was anything wrong with that that was just sort of how you do data analysis you got to 
puzzle that you just have to figure out. And no one, you know, therefore it seems to me it would have been really important for someone to say, actually, that's a really bad idea and here's why that could go really wrong. And in fact, probably does go wrong every single time. So, you know, I don't know that people didn't talk about it because it was an example of the wrong way to do things. I think it was the way that lots of people were doing things. That's interesting. I guess it's it's a cultural thing, a timing related thing. I'm, I'm glad these issues are more talked about now then because I think they are really important for students to understand, everyone to understand. And what you're saying also reminds me frequently when I'm working with students, they talk about what variables should I include in my model? And people are absolutely glued to this concept of does it change my effect estimate by more than 10%? Oh, it's, it's it changes it only 9%. Nope. Oh, versus it changes it 11%. Oh, let's include it, right? And so I, I think that in general, we have these cut points that are sort of convention. And I agree that maybe this is a more modern problem, but it's similar to exactly what you're describing as, as you faced, you know, in, in your training. I am what? probably one year older than you, but you know, we, yeah, we are yeah. a slightly different generation in our training. So it is possible that things have evolved. But so two of the ideas that have been proposed, I would say strongly pushed in the psychological science for dealing with these, the replicability crisis is the idea of pre-registration. So the idea that you would register your study ahead of time. So we, we do this for trials, but we don't do this specifically for observational studies. But the idea that you would register your study with your hypothesis and your analytic plan and you would then have documented what your planned analysis was so that you could then say ahead of time we did this these are the reasons that we did it this is the justification for doing it and therefore you can't say that we p-hacked our way to glory now this book and i think rightly so does not support null hypothesis significance testing as a great thing to be doing and and so you can see some tension emerging immediately because the replication crisis is in a lot of ways is about significant significance testing and the problems that the ways you could sort of manipulate significance testing. But to me, it doesn't seem like just because we don't want to be significance testing doesn't mean that we don't also want to avoid p-hacking. We, we really want to think through what are the variables that go into the model. So pre-registration is one idea. And then they also talk about this idea of, and I, I forget the term that's used for it off the top of my head, but the idea where you don't just pre-register your study, but essentially you write up your introduction and your methods before you do your study. And then you submit it to a journal. And then the journal decides whether or not they want to accept your manuscript before they ever see the results. They basically give you a, an acceptance in which they're reviewing not based on your results, but based only on whether the question is of importance and whether they think the methods are appropriate to be able to answer the question. And the advantage there then is if you do what you say you're, you would do, then we will either you know reject it outright or we guarantee that we will publish it. And that avoids the problem of only publishing things that produce significant results. If you have a null finding that if we thought the question was worth answering, then we should publish it no matter what. And you know I get the sense that the authors of, of modern epidemiology don't love that solution. Okay, I'll, let me just read you a little bit of the text. So they say, proposals to prevent this problem include having studies submitted, reviewed, and accepted for publication based on the methods alone, with reviewers blinded to the results and thus presumably forced to make recommendations with regard to those results. Although reviewer blinding may be compromised by preliminary abstracts and presentations of the study. A simpler alternative would be to address the mistaken belief that publication is merited only for results meeting certain criteria such as statistical significance. That is not obviously dismissing the idea of this prior acceptance, but it's also not overly supportive of it either. So I'm curious your, your take on it. Yeah, I guess I agree with you that, that this is not an idea that's 
particularly in favor with the authors. And I agree with them in the sense that they say research is ultimately a creative process. And I think that by creating absolute criteria, again, that a analyst has to go through, do this and then do that and then do that. It fails to account for the fact that sometimes when you're analyzing your data, things don't go exactly, they never go exactly as you would like them to or or planned them to. So I don't agree with this concept of you have to publish this in advance and stick specifically to it. Okay, so it's called registered reports. Okay. And here's the thing, though. My take is not that you cannot deviate from what you plan. It's simply that you have to present what you plan and then you are going to be forced to both explain anything that you did differently from the plan and you're going to have to soften your con- the conclusions that you draw based on that because it wasn't something that you thought of ahead of time. So there's nothing in, in the registered report formats that says you can't deviate. You absolutely can. But it's basically taking a more cautious approach when we do. Yeah, I mean, I guess my initial take on that was that it would be an enormous pain in the backside. You know, I I think it's not really realistic to expect investigators to publish this in advance, then publish their findings detailing why they deviated or if they, you know, what they did differently. I just think it's not a very realistic structure. Okay, so they're doing it in the psychological sciences. So there are apparently 250 journals that do this, at least based on what I'm reading on the Center for Open Science. But also, I don't know that I totally buy that it's not realistic because it's not all that much work. It's simply doing the work ahead of time because you're going to have to write up what you did anyway. It's just saying write the intro and the methods first and then have it reviewed. I mean, you've presumably in a lot of cases have already done that for your grant. But even the cases where it's not grant funded work is it really that much work to write up what you've done before you do it no i i don't think that's the most difficult part of it and i think in many cases you're right we write some of that up in advance it's the the backside it's the follow-up part of it where you have to detail what additional things you did why you did them i don't think it's not feasible i just think it's an additional burden and they've talked about in the chapter how we really incentivize new findings and and publications and whether that's fair or not I think is a different debate as a sort of early career researcher I need to push out as many publications as I can and spending a lot of time describing why I deviated from the protocol it would be hard for me but I but I do see the value in doing it yeah we should at some point have the conversation about the incentives and the fact that you are being pushed to put out as much research as possible as opposed to focusing on the quality of that work which i think is something that we are incentivized to do but doesn't ultimately serve science very well but that's another another point but i don't know i don't know that i see it as that you'd have to spend a lot of space to explain these deviations i mean it probably we're probably talking like a, a paragraph in in maybe one in your results and maybe one in your your discussion yeah so i don't know i don't i don't see it as as a big limitation i guess i was seeing it more as creating a whole separate document that goes uploaded on the repository. That's probably excessive. You know, I I think maybe what you're describing is is more feasible and realistic for investigators to include, you know, an extra paragraph in each of those sections on on why this 
different than what you expected it to be. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't look askance at anybody who, who deviated from the protocol. I think that's probably going to happen a fair bit of time, but then, then at least we, we know. Now, what I don't want to do is get into a situation that things are so rigid where anything that we didn't think ahead of time gets dismissed, because I, I don't think that that's good for science either. I mean, I think we do learn as we go. We get more information. We update our beliefs. We have insights that we didn't have before, and, and we don't want to remove those from the process either. So let me let me just read you, you one more paragraph here. And I think this is more not specifically at just that last idea, but more at the replicability in general and the way it's been viewed. They say this perspective treats each research paper as if its results were right or wrong, as eventually determined by whether its results are reproduced or not. A more thoughtful perspective views each research result as an imperfect measurement of an underlying parameter and allows time for the accumulation of evidence potentially for many studies to ultimately yield knowledge that can guide policy. I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, I think that's actually quite wise counsel. But if what we're doing is generating a body of evidence over time that is highly flawed because we didn't put enough emphasis into approaches to ensuring that the initial result were created in a way that is at least well-reasoned and thought through and isn't p-hacked and all of those things, then we don't necessarily end up over time with a better insight. And I think that's why we can point to some very famous cases where all of the observational data lined up over time in the same way and still turned out to be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I read that not surprisingly differently than you did. I, I took it as more of an optimistic or idealistic statement about Sure. what we should strive towards, not to dismiss the points that you've raised, which, you know, I think are very valid and, and we need to consider them in most situations. But this is what we should hopefully be doing, right, is creating a body of knowledge on a particular topic. And in aggregate, those studies that all that knowledge that has been generated can help guide policy, right? Not to say that there's not going to be flaws um, in certain instances, but on a whole, we wouldn't want to change public policy based on on the result of any you know, one study comes out and we, you know, throw everything out that we used to know and we're going to, you know, be guided by these new results. That's not how I think evidence-based practice should be done. But I think in general, on aggregate, that we need to consider a broader body of literature that hopefully has some kind of consistency to the findings that are being reported. I totally agree with that. To me, it seems that there could be some room for a hybrid of these different approaches. I, I see some value in some of the remedies that have been proposed to the replication crisis that would be interesting to talk to the authors about their views on and whether I'm over-interpreting what they're saying here or not. But I, I think we can do both. We can improve the approaches to science while also allowing for a learning process and a time for information to accumulate approach. That's fair. I think we were done talking about this chapter, but I would like to highlight one particular sentence which made me laugh out loud. Go for it. Which is not all that common in modern epidemiology, but on page 25 under the title of selective reporting, they talk about one way for addressing this problem is to have teams of rivals with different views and competing theories analyze the data independently. And I was laughing thinking about teams of rivals. Like, I, I don't know why exactly, but it made me think of West Side Story, you know, where, where they're like snapping at each other oh, and, you sure. know, 
you know, yeah. rival gangs going at it over over a, a topic or a research question. And for some reason, that that image made me laugh out loud. You know, rival street gangs of epidemiologists who are fighting over <laughs> over a research question. I love the idea of rival gangs of of epidemiologists. I, and so it's funny you say that because it made me think of. Do you remember the cartoons that they used to do? Like, I think they were like the Wacky Olympics. Uh, yes. Yeah. Where you'd have teams of your favorite characters from different cartoon shows. They would compete for, I have no idea what they were competing <laughs> for. And it was cartoons, so obviously it was totally made up. That's what I was sort of envisioning. Yeah, it also reminds me of Summer Camp Color Wars. Like the red team is fighting with the blue team over the egg boil. Who can boil their egg first? I don't, I don't know if that's something that was just at my camp. But anyways, um, yes, that, that can provoke some pretty funny imagery, which is not that common in modern epidemiology. Okay, so you were a summer camp kid. Yes. Oh, yes. Loved it. Sleepaway camp or just day camp? Nope. Sleepaway camp from age seven. Yeah, the summer going into third grade or grade three, as we call it in Canada, all the way into my 20s. Okay, I didn't start going until I think I was 10, but I also went. And yeah, I think for people who, who are not summer camp kids, Color War is one of those things that does not compute. And when you explain it to them, they're like, eh, that doesn't sound all that interesting. Yeah, you had a cheer battle. You were cheering at each other. But yes, those are very important things in a Color War. But I did want to say we had we did not have anything where you had to boil an egg. I just want to... Oh, yes. No, you had a, you know, it was a culminating event where the teams would have this long relay. And at the end of the relay that you had to boil boil the egg fastest. Okay, so while we're on the subject of boiling egg, uh, this will be a a great place to to end this. One thing that I noticed this time in reading through some chapters of modern epidemiology, particularly the early chapters where we're kind of getting into the philosophy of science and things like that, if you notice, a lot of the examples that they use when talking about the philosophy of, of science and causation and things like that, a lot of the examples that they use are examples that relate to natural phenomena. So they talk about boiling water. The If you were to assert that the temperature at which water boils is 100 Celsius, you could replicate that over and over and over. And you would still be wrong because if you went to a place at, at altitude, you would find that there is a, di- you know, it's different. So, so doing things over and over doesn't necessarily make it right. There's an example about that. I think about the moons of Jupiter and things like that. A lot of the examples that they use relate to natural phenomena, which I think is both interesting and telling a little bit because I think the reason why they use those a lot of times is because those are, while not fixed, they are more fixed it's true that water boils at a different temperature and altitude, but if you go to the same altitude, it's going to boil at roughly the same temperature anywhere you go, or gravity is going to work the exact same way in most conditions other than, you know, at, at the speed of light, but in most conditions, it's going to work the same way. And so those are discoverable laws in ways that the kinds of things that we study and deal with don't really follow precise laws like that. I mean, there's still laws presumably that govern disease causation, but they are much more, more complicated. So I don't know. I don't know if you had that same reaction no i i I actually i didn't pick up on that and it's an interesting point because as i sat i think it's in chapter three and and they were talking about um electrical circuits and what happens when you you know interrupt a circuit or let us oh yeah it was in the context of dags i think you know we're talking about letting the, the the current flow through and open it and closed paths and and i agree that those are very helpful examples they're i guess simplistic but easily understood by almost everyone the concept of electrical currents or, or water boiling etc so they're very useful sort of as teaching examples before you get into the substantially more complicated examples with a million different risk factors for disease and how you in- incorporate all those into a dag it's, it's a much harder way to 
to, to think about it. Yeah. So I have to say, I, I loved the electricity example. I'd somehow yeah. never ever heard that before. And we'll, we'll come back to that later. We need to, to wrap up. And I just want to point out that our original plan was to tackle chapter two and three. And I think there was a question as to whether we would actually be able to fill up the time or we'd have anything to talk about. And I just want to point out that I said we absolutely would. And we did and have way more to say because his stuff is really interesting to us. I will say this has been super fun. And so I'm looking forward to the conversations that we get to have going forward. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with you. I am surprised that we were able to fill the time. I guess that's not agreeing with you, but I am surprised that we were able to fill the time. And I hope we have a chance to talk about chapter three as well, because I think there's a lot of really interesting uh, tidbits. So maybe this will be a, a to be continued. We'll, we'll make a plan. Yeah, we'll leave our listeners hanging a little bit. You know, know you're dying to find out what happens in chapter three. Oh, leave, always want to leave them on a cliffhanger. Exactly. Before we end, to remind you that for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I want to strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which I'm feeling very confident that the next meeting will be a live in-person meeting in Chicago, June of 2022. Let's hope so. Membership also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at Epidemiologic research.org. We also want to plug once again our sister podcast Casual Inference from the American Journal of Epidemiology. If you like that one, this one we think you like that one. And they have been on hiatus much like we have, but they are coming back soon and I'm looking forward to to their new episodes and we we do appreciate very much everyone who's been listening. We've heard from a, a number of people over the the past year about what they thought about uh the first season and it's been great to hear from you. So if you've got any any thoughts, we we love to hear about it. Tell us on Twitter, send us an email, whatever you like. So just a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. And thanks for, for listening. We'll, we will see you on our next episode.